Welcome once again to the second wave of quarantine evidence-based radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So let us start tonight with a brief foray into talking about COVID-19. Both scientists, and frankly, myself, are a bit surprised that there has not yet been a large uptick in cases due to the BA2 subvariant of Omicron, which has now become the dominant form of COVID in the United States. Now, there are several possible reasons for this. One is that we have greater immunity due to the fact that so many Americans were infected with the original Omicron variant, many due, of course, to their refusal to be vaccinated, and those who didn't may be largely fully vaccinated. Around 45% of Americans were infected with the original Omicron variant, a higher percentage than in Europe. But of course, part of what we know about this is that having been vaccinated does not fully protect you. Even if you've been vaccinated, you still can uh, contract this variant and the other Omicron variants. Most of Europe has been pretty COVID-adverse, William Hanage, a Harvard epidemiologist, said on a recent episode of the In the Bubble podcast, whereas parts of the United States have been quite COVID-curious. I really liked that quote. (laughs) He suspects that cases will climb in the near future, but notes that I don't think it's going to be as dramatic as Europe. Now, the one area that has already seen a slight rise in cases is actually here in the Northeast. And so um, here in the Northeast, there has definitely been a uptick. Now, on the other hand, there may be an uptick, but we're just not seeing it in the data in other places. There are less testing facilities open at this point, with a policy shift to encouraging rapid tests at home rather than PCR testing. This is, of course, especially hard-hitting for low-income Americans who may not have access to tests as insurance companies have begun to stop paying for them, because of course they have. Many clinicians believe that cases are underreported, and in some counties, this may be dramatic. Testing has declined in the U.S. while it has climbed in many European countries during the B2 surge. But another factor, hospitalizations for COVID, usually only lags around a week, and those continue to fall and are approaching the lowest levels in more than two years. Now, that doesn't mean that we are out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. Researchers warn that it is currently a game of wait and see. It may be too early to see a signal, Jennifer Nuzzo, a Brown University epidemiologist, told the New York Times. Another factor at play is our basic knowledge of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. While we've had a crash course in its intricacies, 
there is still a lot that we just don't know. Michael Osterholm, a University of Minnesota epidemiologist, when asked why the variant hasn't yet caused a surge, stated, I don't know, and I don't think anybody really knows. He feels that the media, other scientists, and the public have an exaggerated idea of how much we know about the virus. For instance, he and other sources have noted the case of the Alpha variant, which surged through Michigan and Minnesota last year and then failed to reach any other part of the U.S. in significant numbers. BA2 is now the dominant variant in India, South Africa, Sweden, and other countries, where there has been little or no increase in new cases. And so that's a really important thing to remember, that we have been sort of saturated in COVID-19 information over the last two years, and we've made great strides. There's no doubt about that. I mean, the fact that we would get a vaccine so quickly because we had already been laying the groundwork with mRNA virus, I'm sorry, mRNA um, vaccines, that we were able to do that was amazing and an absolute testament to science and its ability to understand this uh, really, um, you know, varied and constantly changing virus because that is, of course, the problem. That's why we keep getting different variants, because the virus mutates. And so it is a, basically, it is a constantly moving target. And even the original versions that we've studied for longer, it still takes a long time to fully understand the intricacies of something like a coronavirus. You know, there's the whole thing that people always talk about, wherein we know that coronaviruses cause the common cold. Well, we still haven't cured the common cold because coronaviruses are tricky and it's not easy to create universal panaceas for them. And so even though we know a lot about COVID, there's still a lot that we don't know. And so sometimes it follows a really straightforward path and sometimes it doesn't. And there's just a lot of reasons that we don't yet comprehend as to why that is. But again, there are signs not only in the Northeast, but also in places like Puerto Rico and the District of Columbia seeing double-digit increases in cases recently. So you probably heard that a bunch of lawmakers and uh, journalists were having a party where they had relaxed their vigilance, and a bunch of them have started to test positive again for COVID, including Nancy Pelosi. And so the idea that the pandemic is waning is very much untrue, and I'm quite unsurprised that relaxed vigilance has led to an uptick in cases. And so, again, to drive that point home, we're still averaging around 50,000 confirmed cases per day. And as noted, this is in the face of a decrease in testing. 
And so, yes, deaths are going down, which is fantastic, amazing. I hope that we don't have another surge. I'm hoping that somehow we are just going to dodge that bullet and we are going to continue to see waning numbers. But I just, I don't have any confidence in that whatsoever. And so the U.S. currently ranks 55th in the world for booster shots and 67th for the two-shot regime. We're also only at 66% booster rates for those over 65, whereas that rate in Europe and many Asian countries is generally over 90%. And so that is a big factor. America has had this, frankly, rather baffling uh debate over the vaccine, which I know that you're completely and utterly familiar with and probably as sick to death of talking about as I am. But we continue to see the repercussions from that. And so I don't know what the answer is. I, You know, we still don't know what the answer to that is um, of how to convince people who have been misled about the science to understand how important it is to get vaccinated. And, you know, the other factor, of course, is that there is still a huge number of small children who are not even eligible for a vaccine. And besides that, we know that there are zoonotic reservoirs now, including deer, mink, and apparently hamsters, which I didn't realize until just the other day. But yes, apparently there has been some transmission uh, between children and their pet hamsters. And so there is a lot of room for the virus to continue to find different ways to mutate, uh, to have recombination events where uh, two different strains come together and swap some of the material, their, some of their genetic material and end up with a new version. Um, we know that there were some people who were infected with both Delta and Omicron at certain points. And so, yeah, all of that is a... Um, it's kind of a virological nightmare, frankly, and I don't think people really understand how uh, much can still very much go wrong with this virus. And so, yeah, I know that we're all waiting for it to become endemic, and I was just talking to my husband about that the other day. But of course, then I was reading something else that reminded me that when you say that it becomes endemic, endemic doesn't mean that it becomes not something to worry about. It's endemic diseases are something that we have basically given up on trying to eradicate. And so we as a society just decide that it is 
you know, an acceptable thing that a certain amount of people are going to die of pneumonia and influenza every year, that a certain amount of people are going to die of measles. And we've been trying, obviously, with things like measles to vaccinate people and to eradicate them. It's not to say that we don't have any kind of work out there to try and eradicate endemic diseases. But for the most part, when we say it's endemic, it means that we have given up on the idea that it's something that we can get rid of. And we might be able to get rid of it down the road, but it becomes something that is no longer seen as an emergency, but as an acute affliction. And so even if we are to reach the endemic stage, that still means that people are going to die every year from COVID. And unless it takes a severe turn towards uh, less um, virulence, then that is going to happen. And so it's really unfortunate that we didn't uh, have a more universal and more equitable response to it initially. We might have been able to eradicate it when it first started, but we didn't. And that chip has long since sailed. And there's really nothing that we can do about that at this point. And we also know that there are other issues. And so a recent study from the UK found a reduction in gray matter and brain size particularly in the limbic region, and cognitive decline in 401 patients infected by COVID-19. And I believe they were suffering from um, feelings of long COVID. And so obviously we know about long COVID, and that is something that we know exists. And we know that there are a cluster of symptoms that are generally um, suggested to be what we would consider a diagnostic for long COVID, but there's a ton about long COVID that we don't understand, pretty much everything. We are in the absolute infancy of understanding how something that is an acute infection can then cause long-term effects on all sorts of different parts of the body. And so, you know, we have these increasingly worrying reports of long COVID. We see cardiovascular and we're also seeing mental health declines reported in many cases at the one year mark because people get depressed when they're sick for a really long time and their mental health deteriorates. And that is just a fact. Um, trust me, I live with someone who has chronic pain and it is not good on your mental health. Um, it just isn't. It's it's devastating on your mental health, frankly. And, um, you know, for someone who got COVID and thought, oh, it'll go away after a while and then continues to have issues months and months and, you know, in starting into years that has got to be really, really horrible. I've read some of the stories of people who were in their peak of health, got COVID, and now, you know, get winded walking across a room. And yeah. So again, there is no guarantee that a recombination event won't lead to a new strain that evades our immune system response. 
and also could be or could be more deadly. So COVID is definitely still a very potent threat and should not be considered a uh, mission accomplished, shall we say. Okay, let's move on. And well, let's talk a little more specifically about death. Now, this isn't as bad as it sounds. Um, I don't, you know, I always try and keep this uh, show fairly upbeat. Um, I do obviously want to talk about serious issues. So we just talked a lot about COVID, which is a still a very serious issue. But this one was actually really interesting to me. And it mostly talks, I mean, most of it is about uh, near death. So this is a story um, or a paper about new guidelines and research that suggests how we can study the phenomena of what is generally called uh, near-death experiences or NDEs and the process that the brain undergoes as it dies. And so I find this really fascinating, both from a scientific perspective, but also from a skeptical perspective. Um, I've always been very skeptical of the idea of an NDE being something that is truly universal, but the researchers found widespread evidence that people do indeed often have such experiences, which I think is totally fascinating. And um, I think that from my perspective, having read this and having read um, a couple of other things in this vein for this story tonight, my feeling on it is that, sure, it seems like it is a real phenomenon, but as with ghosts and hauntings and all sorts of paranormal things uh, with UFOs, anything that people swear they've seen or swear they've experienced, I believe that it's either a natural process that we just don't understand yet, or, and this is especially relevant to this discussion, that it is a function of your brain and that your brain is telling you you're seeing this or experiencing this, even though to an outside observer, it might not be happening. And of course, when I say that, I don't mean to imply that people are crazy or that they are having some sort of mental issue, I just think that sometimes your brain might do weird things and might give you weird uh, input uh, when you really are seeing nothing or it's just, you know, I'm constantly telling you about how much your brain lies to you all the time. We're actually going to talk a little bit more about the brain tonight, so it's going to be really interesting, I hope. And so, yeah, that's how I feel about this. But let's get into the actual meat of it. So the study is called Guidelines and Standards for the Study of Death and Recalled Experiences of Death. And it was published in the Annals of the New York Academy of Sciences. It's the first peer-reviewed consensus statement on recalled experiences around death. The researchers involved come from a variety of backgrounds and institutions. Cardiac arrest is not a heart attack, but represents the final stage of a disease or even or event that causes a person to die, lead author Sam Parnia, 
MD, PhD, Director of Critical Care and Resuscitation Research at NYU Grossman School of Medicine, explained, The advent of cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or CPR, showed us that death is not an absolute state. Rather, it's a process that could potentially be reversed in some people even after it has started. What has enabled the scientific study of death, he continues, is that brain cells do not become irreversibly damaged within minutes of oxygen deprivation when the heart stops. Instead, they die over hours of time. This is allowing scientists to objectively study the physiological and mental events that occur in relation to death. And so they outlined several findings, including that, as I noted, among the hundreds of millions of people who have experienced resuscitation and or recovery from death or near death, that there is a large body of consistent recollections with universal themes. They found that the experiences did not conform to standard descriptions of hallucinations, illusions, or psychedelic drug-induced experiences, based on several previous published papers. Instead, they follow a specific narrative arc with the perception of a separation from the body with a heightened vast sense of consciousness and recognition of death, b travel to a destination, C, a meaningful and purposeful review of life involving a critical analysis of all actions, intentions, and thoughts towards others, a perception of D, being in a place that feels like home, and E, a return back to life. They further found that for many people, this experience led to long-term psychological transformation and growth. And they found that there was an emergence of gamma activity and electrical spikes often associated with heightened states of consciousness on EEGs from patients, suggesting a real phenomena was occurring in the brain. Like I said, there is, it seems, something definitely going on in the brain. The researchers acknowledge that more research needs to be conducted in order to better explain the biological basis of these experiences and how the brain engages during the death experience. We've learned in recent years, again, that death is not a moment, but a process. And so, as with the brain cells, it can take hours to days to fully disengage all functions of a body. Few studies have explored what happens when we die in an objective and scientific way, but these findings offer intriguing insights into how consciousness exists in humans and may pave the way for further research, Parnia added. And so I definitely think that we should do further research into this because it's just a really fascinating thing, and a lot of people are very um, committed to the idea of... Um, you know, near-death experiences and things like that. And I think it's great to be able to pull that into the realm of science and say, okay, we understand this now. I always love when that happens. Um, I know that it takes the magic out of it for some people, but I always think science is way cooler than, uh, you know, the paranormal. Um, but, you know, I also acknowledge that I'm not... Uh, that that is not necessarily a popular opinion, that a lot more people like the mystery than they do someone just saying, oh no, we know why that happens. 
Anyways, there is another study that I wanted to talk about. And so this is published in Frontiers in Aging Neuroscience. And it looked at the findings of EEG readings on a man who passed away suddenly during monitoring for epilepsy. So the 87-year-old patient was under the care of Dr. Raul Vincente of the University of Tartu in Estonia and his colleagues who were using EEG to detect seizures and treat the patient. During the treatment, the the patient had a sudden heart attack and died. Uh, And so obviously this happens. Um, They are uh, oftentimes called rather morbidly uh, widowmakers. And so, uh, you know, usually that's for younger people who have sudden heart attacks and die. But, you know, having a heart attack and dying is something that can happen very suddenly without much warning at all. And so because this happened, they then had a unique event to study. It is the first time the activity of a human brain has been measured while the person was dying. We measured 900 seconds of brain activity around the time of death and set a specific focus to investigate what happened in the 30 seconds before and after the heart stopped beating, said Dr. Ajmal Zamar, a neurosurgeon at the University of Louisville who organized the study. Just before and after the heart stopped working, we saw changes in a specific band of neural oscillations, so-called gamma oscillations, or gamma waves, but also in others such as delta, theta, alpha, and beta oscillations. Now, some of these waves, including gamma waves, are associated with high cognitive functions, including dreaming, meditation, memory retrieval, information processing, and conscious perception. This may, again, suggest a specific biological reason for the NDE phenomena. Through generating oscillations involved in memory retrieval, the brain may be playing a last recall of important life events just before we die, similar to the ones reported in near-death experiences, Zamar speculated. These findings challenge our understanding of what ex- of when exactly life ends and generate important subsequent questions, such as those related to the timing of organ donation. Which is a little bit, uh, <laughs> that's a little bit scary when you think about it, um, the, to uh, consider that someone might not be fully dead yet when you start to harvest their organs. But um, I don't think we're there yet to know whether or not that's true. So please don't think that uh, I am advocating that this is something that we know. And uh, of course, one of the big caveats of this is that this study represents a sample size of literally one. And of course, that is not enough to draw solid conclusions. And uh, so we would need to recreate this on a lot more patients before we would know whether or not it is representative. And of course, the patient also had a brain that had been damaged before death and was already considered abnormal. So, you know, the patient had had an onset of epilepsy caused by a fall, I believe. And so, you know, the brain had already had 
uh, abnormalities uh, in it before the patient, uh, you know, had the heart attack. And so obviously much more work will need to be done in order to prove whether or not this result is typical or was unique to this patient. And, you know, I think it's a worthy area of study. I look forward to further research on the subject, but I also understand that this can be kind of a hard thing to study because a lot of people have a lot of deep feelings about uh, death from, um, you know, religious, spiritual, and philosophical areas, which, you know, can be hard to negotiate when you are trying to do something that is very uh, scientific. And I totally get that. And so I don't want to say that we should ask anyone to do anything that would be against their uh, beliefs. And, you know, I don't think that even if we figure this out, that everyone will believe it's true, because some people will have very uh, deep-seated ideas about what happens and why. And as I, as I get older, I continue to feel uh, less of a pull to try and correct people and to bring them into uh, the fold of hard science. Um, you know, when I was young, I would say, oh, we need to just teach people that things are, you know, how they are, and then they'll just give up all their beliefs about the supernatural and all of this other stuff. Um, but obviously, I have started to feel much less uh, strongly about that. And um, I am focusing on the more important part, which is keeping people from using their ideas of religion uh, in ways that harm other people that are not part of that religion. Um, but if you are or um, young adults in that religion, I should say as well. Um, you know, if you are an adult and you want to believe in something and it's not doing any harm to anyone else, then I think that I am much less concerned about you than I am about a lot of other people. And so, yeah. All right. We are actually going to take a break um, so I can stop uh, rambling about this and uh, we will come back and we are going to talk about memory for a minute. So we're going to stick with the brain and then we'll move on from there after we talk about memory. So please do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player, each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. 
There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. We are back, and you are continuing to listen to Evidence-Based Radio. I thank you for sticking with me. And as advertised, we are going to stick with talking about the brain for a few minutes and discuss memory. A team of researchers have discovered how working memory is formatted, which will help us better understand how visual memories are stored. For decades, researchers have wondered about the nature of the neural representations that support our working memory, explains Clayton Curtis, professor of psychology and neuroscience at New York University and senior author of the paper, which appears in the journal Neuron. In this study, we used both experimental and analytical techniques to reveal the format of working memory representations in the brain. Working memory is the brain's storage method for brief periods of time and a building block for most higher cognitive functions. Problems with working memory are associated with a host of psychiatric and neurological symptoms, including schizophrenia. But as with most of the brain's workings, there's still a lot we don't know. Although we can predict the contents of your working memory from the patterns of brain activity, what exactly these patterns are coding for has remained impenetrable, Curtis states. Curtis and co-author Yuna Quack, an NYU doctoral student, hypothesized that in addition to ditching superfluous information, the brain recodes 
task-relevant features into memory formats that are both efficient and distinct from the original perceptual inputs. So basically, your brain is taking what it is seeing and transforming it into a different uh, format in order uh, to be able to use it in a way that is quick. And so it is actually, uh, basically, it's developed a version of, uh, I would say, like shorthand. And so it takes what you see and it and it converts it into a shorthand. And so previous research had has shown that the brain recodes information. For instance, and this actually kind of blew my mind, I did not know about it. Ooh, no pun intended there. Visual information about letters and numbers is transformed into phonological or sound-based codes that are verbal. And so when seeing a string of numbers, you store the number as the sound it would make as you read it in your head rather than as a visual picture, which is so cool. <laughs> I literally had no idea about that. Um, uh, neuroscience is not my favorite uh, thing to read about, but maybe I should read some more about it. Anyways, knowing that hasn't actually helped us figure out how it happens. The researchers placed subjects in an fMRI machine and asked them to do a working memory task. The participants were asked to remember a briefly presented visual stimulus, and then after a few seconds were asked to make a memory-based judgment. Some trials included a tilted grading, while others involved a cloud of moving dots. Participants were asked to precisely indicate the exact angle of the grate or the motion of the cloud. They found that the patterns of neural activity in the visual cortex and parietal cortex, a part of the brain used in memory storage and processing, were interchangeable during this task. Despite the tasks being different, the brain treated them the same. We reasoned that only the task-relevant features of the tested stimuli were extracted and recoded into a shared memory format, perhaps taking the form of an abstract line-like shape angled to match either the orientation of the grading or the direction of dot motion, explains Curtis. And so to test the hypothesis that the brain was creating a line-like pattern rather than a fuller picture of the memory, they found a way to visualize the patterns of brain activity. Using models of each cortical population's receptive field, they projected the memory patterns encoded in the patterns of activity onto a two-dimensional representation of visual space. This recreated the view of the patient that the patient had of the monitor. The researchers were then able to visualize in screen coordinates the pattern of the subject's cortical activity, confirming a line-like representation for both motion and great orientation. We could see lines of activity across the topographical maps at angles corresponding to the motion direction and grading, explains Curtis. And I actually looked at some of the figures in the uh, paper, and it's wild. Um, and so there's basically, they'll show you 
where the grading uh, angle was. And then they'll show you a picture of the visualization. And there's like a flared line uh, that is in the same orientation as the grading. And they were really well matched. And it's just, it's a little bit hard to explain. Um, I sometimes wish this wasn't just an oral medium, but um, it's really amazing. And so what this suggests is that the brain was able to strip out the information that wasn't useful for the immediate task. For instance, how many dots were in the cloud or the contrast of the grading. And simply focus on the important data, a line representing the angle of the grate and a line or arrow indicating the direction of movement of the cloud. It also suggests how the brain is able to simultaneously present working memory content and incoming visual information without getting confused or overwhelmed. The two sets of data are encoded differently. Our visual memory is flexible and can be abstractions of what we see driven by behavior, by the behaviors they guide, Curtis concludes. It also suggests how the brain is able to simultaneously present working memory content and incoming, I'm sorry, um, <laughs> and uh, incoming visual information without getting confused because the two sets of data are coded differently. And so, yeah, that is so cool. Um, so cool. Apparently I had to read it twice. <laughs> Sorry about that. All right. We are going to uh, switch gears now and circle back to a story I've talked about a couple of times on this show, um, which is the Jet Love Pass incident. So hopefully you're familiar with the story, but I'll give a tiny summary. Radio engineer student Igor Dyatlov and nine friends from the Euro Polytechnic Institute decided to go camping in the northern Ural Mountains in February of 1959. One of them, Yuri Yudin, turned back due to a flare of rheumatism that made walking painful. He would end up being the only one of the group who survived. The other nine were discovered weeks and in some cases months later, all having perished from frostbite and exposure. Now, I won't go into any kind of detail, but the disposition of the bodies led to much speculation over the years, especially as myths built up to add to the already perplexing situation. Uh, you know, there was things about, you know, radiation burns and a bunch of other stuff that just was not true. And so last year, two Swiss researchers, Johann Guillaume and Alexander Puzzerin, decided to investigate whether or not a slab avalanche could have led to the group's demise. They ran several computer simulations and found that between some unexpected extra snowfall and the fierce catabatic winds, the conditions could have led to a slab avalanche as the tent site had been cut into the slope. While scientists and officials in Russia agreed with the pair, more vernacular out outlets were skeptical. Mysteries are more attractive while unsolved, or at least not solved with a boring scientific explanation, the authors wrote, and that I echoed earlier. <laughs> he also noted that for those still alive who are related to the group, his findings do suggest that they died because of their own actions, rather than as an act of fate, which can be hard to reconcile. If they had headed back down the slope to camp in the tree line, 
they most likely would have survived. Cutting into the slope ultimately allowed it to become unstable and cause the avalanche. But realistically, it was not a foregone conclusion and no one should really blame them. To further confirm their hypothesis, the two traveled to the area on three separate occasions, the last being this past January, where they observed firsthand avalanches in the area of the tragedy. And so this is the really cool part. They realized that these avalanches can be quickly obliterated without a trace, making it less likely for people to have believed that they could have been the culprit. No wonder then that the Dyatlov rescue team could not find signs of an avalanche three weeks after the incident, they wrote. This also explains why no avalanches have been observed there before. In such severe weather conditions, the pass cannot be easily accessed by hikers, while traces of small slab avalanches disappear within a few hours. So, of course, there are never any true absolutes in science, and there is always a chance that a better explanation could come along. It's very hard to conclusively solve mysteries from the past. However, Puzrin is quite content. The fact that the Russian scientific community accepted our findings and that our hypotheses were confirmed by recent field expeditions means a great deal to me. Not because we can confirm the exact series of events that led to this tragedy over 60 years ago. We'll never be absolutely certain what happened to the members of that group. But because it reaffirms my faith in science. For me personally, this whole experience has been about standing up for the scientific method as a valuable, reliable way of explaining natural phenomena, which is like pitch perfect for how I feel about the situation. Um, so yeah, I definitely wanted to talk about that update because previously uh, they had only done computer simulations, but now they've actually been to the site They've actually observed slab avalanches and, um, you know, they were there and the conditions were very similar to how they had been um, at the time when the tragedy happened. And so I think it's pretty conclusive now that what they believe happened is what actually happened. Okay, so we are moving into the warmer months here in the Northern Hemisphere so what better to talk about than to switch gears utterly and completely and talk about making better ice cream? Um, I've saved the best bits for last since some of the other stuff was kind of heavy. So um, I hope that in the uh, last 10 minutes or so here, we can talk about things that are a lot more uh, uplifting and happy than uh, near-death experiences and things like that. So, um, Tao Wu, a food scientist specializing in carbohydrate chemistry at the University of Tennessee and his team, decided to look for a better way to prevent ice crystal formation in ice cream, especially after it has softened and been refrozen. So I'm sure that you've left ice cream out for too long, put it back in the freezer at some point, and then when you brought it back out, it was covered in ice crystals and uh, was no longer nearly as tasty as it had been. 
food science is not cooking, Wu said during a press conference. It is a multidisciplinary field that uses chemistry, biology, and engineering to solve real-world problems in the production of food. For instance, we must use good chemistry knowledge to produce high-quality ice cream. Um, I'm cool with that. I'm actually, uh, I've been cooking a lot more lately. And, um, you know, some people talk about the difference between cooking and baking. And I definitely think that is very true. Uh, when I cook, I often uh, am really eyeballing things and just being like, oh, that's good enough. And uh, I know that oftentimes baking is a little less forgiving about those sorts of things. I haven't done a lot of baking, um, but I definitely would not know where to start to uh, try and solve the issue of ice cream. <laughs> and so a good ice cream does not have a lot of what is called overrun, uh, which is air added to the mixture as it's churned. The more overrun, the faster an ice cream will melt and thus need to be refreezed. When this happens, large ice crystals can develop that make the ice cream crunchy rather than smooth. Commercial stabilizers, meant to help prevent this recrystallization, are frankly not very good at it. You've probably seen some of these in the ingredients of some of your favorite frozen desserts. Things like lecithin, guar gum, locust bean gum, carrageenan, and pectin. These stabilizers are not very effective, Wu said. Their performance is influenced by many factors, including storage temperature and time, and the composition and concentration of other ingredients. This means they sometimes work in one product, but not in another. Min Li, a graduate student in the lab, notes that they were inspired by the structure and function of antifreeze proteins found in nature. And so um, obviously we know that there are species of fish and insects and plants that naturally produce antifreeze proteins in order to survive in sub-zero temperatures. And so think of fish that can be frozen in a pond, and then when the pond freezes, suddenly they wake up and they're happy again. Um, and, you know, there are definitely plants that can survive, for instance, frost. And so they do that by having these proteins. The proteins stick to the surface of ice crystals, which prevents them from clumping together and growing larger. But those proteins are sparse and very expensive. So trying to extract these proteins from um, plants or uh, especially from any kind of animal is going to probably be a fairly painstaking process. Uh, the only real way to get something like that on a non-painstaking process is to figure out how to make uh, either yeast or other bacteria produce it. And so that's how we get things like insulin and all sorts of food additives are basically, they've been deconstructed as to how they are created, uh, what genetic materials are needed to code for their creation. And then those genes are inserted into yeast 
which then, you know, churns it out in vast quantities. Uh, and so instead of trying to, you know, do that whole development, the researchers turned to another substance that had the same properties. And so you need something that has a hydrophilic surface, which seeks out water, and a hydrophobic surface that repels water. Cellulose nanocrystals have this important amphiphilic structure, so they were a good candidate. Nanocelluloses are abundant, renewable, and inexpensive, said Lee, which is very good. The team added the nanocrystals to a model ice cream. Initially, it didn't help the ice cream at all compared to a control sample. But after the ice cream had been stored for several hours, the nanocellulose-infused ice cream had not developed any large ice crystals, while the control had. It also worked better than those stabilizers currently used. The team believes that these could be in ice cream being sold commercially in just three to five years, depending on FDA approval. And they see no reason to suspect that it will not be approved. So that is something to look forward to. And the research might be even more helpful than making your favorite ice cream a little more stable, though that's not an unworthy uh, cause. It might also help in the cryopreservation of biological cells, <laughs> tissues, and organs. For example, in biotechnology and biomedicine, cells are typically stored in liquid nitrogen, said Wu. During the storage, ice recrystallization can lead to cell damage or death. Adding, ice recrystallization inhibitors during the cryopreservation process can increase the cell viability, which could in turn lead to better transportation and storage of such materials, which would be pretty fantastic. Um, that would be pretty amazing. Okay. So I want to end on a really high note tonight. Uh, it may sometimes feel like the internet and or humanity were mistakes, let's be honest. <laughs> but every once in a while, the two combine to create something magical. And yes, I am overhyping this, but I refuse not to. So a person, which is, they, they remain steadfastly anonymous. Uh, someone has created a Twitter account called unsolicited dick dicks. Now, I assume that you are aware of the phenomena of unsolicited pictures of, let's be frank, usually male genitalia being offered up to the unsuspecting. Well, this account posts twice daily pictures of dick dicks, which are adorable and tiny antelopes from Southern and Eastern Africa. They're around the size of a large cat or small dog. They have large eyes and long eyelashes, a small trunk-like snout, which they use like elephant ears to help cool themselves, and a wild patch of hair that sticks up from their heads. This account now comes in a close second to animals sitting on capybara as being one of the most wholesome things on the internet. Dictics have four species, but none of them is particularly well studied because they're considered quite common, sort of like the African equivalent of a rabbit or a squirrel. But Adam Ford, an ecologist at the University of British Columbia, did his doctoral research on these cute critters. Apparently, they're one of the few mammals that practice strict monogamy. Now, 
I don't. I practice ethical non-monogamy, so I'm not a very good dick dick, but you know, what are you going to do? Uh, apparently it's not necessarily out of affection, but rather because male dick dicks, despite being petite and adorable, are fiercely territorial. Males use secretions from below their eyes to mark their territory, and since they're kind of small and adorable, they don't really have the ability to uh, cow, shall we say, a lot of females, so they generally only have one partner. Uh, If another male attempts to horn in on their territory, they will have what is referred to as an air cushion battle. They're non-contact headbutting matches for dominance, Ford said. Uh, so yeah, um, they use their snouts not only to cool themselves off in weather that can often be over a hundred degrees, but they use it as a whistle warning to predators. The whistle sounds a little like Zixic, which is where they got their name and it's adorable. And they're pretty important despite, despite not being well studied. They are actually able to change the features of the savanna by being voracious grazers and help shape which plants are abundant. A 2015 study led by Ford found that they most likely helped with the recovery of African wild dogs in central Kenya. African wild dogs are among my other favorite animals, so dictics have definitely gone up in my esteem. So the next time you are despairing about the state of the world considering scrolling through some unsolicited dictics. So yeah, um, definitely an amazing and wonderful part of the internet that I am proud to share with you because goodness gracious me, um, (laughs) when I read about this, I was just like, that is the most brilliant and wonderful thing I have ever heard of. And I have to share it with everyone I know and everyone I can reach. So um, please share the love of unsolicited dick dicks tonight or whenever you're listening to this. Okay, that is all the time we have for tonight. Thank you for listening once again to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.